This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. Facebook Design works on an enormous and diverse range of interesting problems. So I asked John Lax, Director of Product Design at Facebook, what's his biggest challenge with designing for Facebook? And here's what he said. Having to design for 1.6 billion people in our community, trying to understand cultural and social norms around the world, and then designing solutions that can work equally well for people in America or Europe or Africa or India or Asia. That is by far the greatest design challenge I've ever had to deal with in my career. Learn more about Facebook design at facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. Whether you want a full-time job or you're looking for something temporary or freelance, we've got you covered. This week, HyperAct is looking for a strategic planner in Brooklyn. American University in Washington, D.C. is looking for a web developer. Bandcamp is looking for an editorial designer slash art director. MapZen is looking for a developer community manager. Gravity Tank is looking for an interaction designer. And Revision Path is looking for staff writers. You can apply for all of these positions on the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. And if you're looking for more jobs, then become a member of our Slack community and join the jobs channel. See you there. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I want to talk about our other sponsors, MailChimp and Hover. MailChimp is the best software out there for sending marketing emails, automated messages, and targeted campaigns. Join more than 10 million people who use MailChimp to design and send 600 million emails every day. Sign up today at MailChimp.com. When you have a really great idea, you want to secure a great domain name for it, and that's where Hover comes in. Hover makes it extremely easy for you to find the domain name that you're looking for and get it up and running with no hassle and no heavy-handed upselling. So go ahead and grab yourself a domain today and use our promo code REVISIONPATH and you'll save 10% off your purchase. Here's our Patreon fundraising campaign update. We are back up to 33 patrons now for a combined total of $224 per month. Again, a huge thanks to all of you who have already pledged your support and appreciation for the show. If you want to become a patron of Revision Path and get access to some really great perks like special giveaways, early access to future episodes, and free Revision Path swag, head on over to patreon.com forward slash revision path and make that happen. Pledge level started just $1 per month and it's a really great way to support the show on a regular basis. All right, let's go ahead and jump into this week's interview. I'm talking with Bemnet Yemeskin, a senior art director in Washington, D.C. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Bemneti Meskin, creative director and founder of an agency in Washington, D.C. Born and raised in Ethiopia, Addis Ababa. I'm an immigrant, so I'm technically not a first generation yet, but um, I'm here. I've been in uh, the States since 1994, so I've been here a little over 21 years. 
talk to me about what it was like growing up in Ethiopia. What was that experience like for you? Wow. That, you know, honestly, it was probably, you know, I've spent half of my life here. Well, more than half of my life here in, in about 16 years there. It was really a time of, I mean, I have all of my fondest memories really, I think, were in Ethiopia. I still dream. I mean, the majority of dreams that I have, which is weird, is mm-hmm. still happens in Ethiopia. And considering that I've been away for so long, it's still a very, very big part of my identity. I go back at least once a year. Last year, I was able to go back three times, which is awesome. And uh, living in D.C. makes it so much easier to, to fly out there and, uh, and visit. You know, I spent most of my life on the west coast of the U.S., so in California mm-hmm. and Oregon. But um, now that I'm on this side, it's, it's, it's been great. But, you know, to answer your question, it's, it was phenomenal. I, every, all the highs and lows, the community, I mean, the lifestyle is so much different than, than it is out here. Uh, really, and in a lot of ways, it really shaped my personality. I grew up in a very big household. You know, I'm, I'm the 11th child of, of 11 kids. <laughs> and, uh, wow. Yeah, and it's, uh, there's no sense of really, like, personal space, you know, pretty much. I bet. Yeah, throughout. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was amazing. And, and all kind of considering the whole experience, it was good. There was uh, some low times, which also, like, you know, in looking back, really formed my personality and my kind of passion and my work ethic. But overall, it was amazing. For people that are listening, what would you say is probably the biggest misconception that folks have about Ethiopia? It's kind of like this, the regular kind of perception, which is it's a you know, starving country or it's a very poor mm-hmm. country. And, you know, there's parts of it that, are, that, that isn't, you know, that great. But in, in all honesty, people who go there and visit, especially Westerners that go there, they have such a deep affinity for for the land. It's uh, it's a very different type of country. You know, we have our own language is very indigenous. It's never been colonized. Ethiopia has such a rich history in, in so many ways. It was one of the first Christian nations. And there's no, you know, the sense of the, the colonial mentality that exists in some of the other African countries really doesn't mm-hmm. exist there. So really we treat, you know, when you go there, you know, we end up treating foreigners better than we do ourselves. And and not in a way of kind of, you know, they're the oppressor or, and that's why we treat them better. It's more of a, you know, we open up our culture and we open up our homes and are very welcoming. And we haven't really been, you know, our mentality hasn't been diluted by kind of the colonial experience. So it's it's a very fascinating place. It's a very thriving country. It's, it's one of the fastest growing economies in the world right now. Lots of history, lots of, I don't know, just beauty, man. It's, it's, it's an amazing place. I, I love it. I mean slightly biased but <laughs> <laughs> how is it different for you now as an adult than when you were a child you know when you're a child everything is so you know grandiose and and you see all the beautiful parts of everything you know like you're you, you're not jaded by experience as an adult mm-hmm. you kind of tend to be a little bit more critical with the things that you see and like you know there is poverty in which you, you can't deny and there is like this huge you know social gap the, the economic gap. So those things, you kind of, they start becoming a little bit more prominent when you grow up. But I still appreciate the beauty. I still appreciate the culture. I mean, the, one of my fondest memories of, of recently going back was, you know, I was, I was going, you know, shopping in the, you know, one of the shopping districts and it's kind of looking around for stuff to bring back and, and give to friends. I was like, 
every time I go back, I come back with like literally a suitcase full of stuff and I give it to my office mates and, and friends and stuff like that. And I remember shopping and in, in one of these stores and I didn't buy anything and I was about to walk out and one of the, the shop owners said, hey, sit down and, you know, let me, let me buy you some tea or coffee. And I just sat down in his shop and he, you know, he got one of the guys to go next door and, and you know, brought coffee for us. And we just, we just talked. And when I was done with the coffee, I didn't feel obligated to buy anything. And he, you know, he, he welcomed me uh, or he wished me good luck. And I went about my way. And I, 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 I can't have that experience here. You know, there's no mm-hmm. shop owner, no retail owner. You, you can't walk into a mall and the mall owner is going <laughs> to buy you a cup of coffee or something like that. You know, so right, yeah. culturally, it is it really is a great thing. And I would encourage anybody who's listening, who anybody of African descent, anybody really for that matter, to really go and experience it. It's a great country to visit it's very safe out of all the african countries is one of the safest i would say probably like i said very uh uh you don't have to worry about a lot of kind of personal safety issues like bodyguards or anything like that now going back you know to your family you said that you're the 11th out of 11 children yeah. so was creativity like a big part of your childhood the funny thing is if you would have told like you know all the dots connect when you look back you know Mm-hmm. Looking back now, absolutely, absolutely. Growing up, it was just part of part of growing up. Like you know, we were, you know, most of my brothers and sisters by the time I was like, uh, you know, a toddler started leaving for college. So, you know, my formidable years, there was about six or six of us in the house, mm-hmm. and and we had a fairly large property. It was fenced in, so we weren't allowed to play outside the walls, type of thing. But we got so creative with how we spend our time. Like I remember very vividly and we still talk about it with my brothers and sisters where we would just make up games and sometimes like we i remember this one time we actually sat down and it was like a we had a tape recorder and we sat down and we pretended to be like a to record like a a news session you know but it was all made up stories it was stories using our teachers and stuff like that so all of that really helped with the creative thinking part of it and, you know, being one of so many kids, you really have to figure out how to stand out, especially being the youngest, where, you know, the social structure back home is the younger that you are, the more submissive you're supposed to be, the more kind of respectful you have to be. And, and you basically there's like a totem pole of, of, of uh-huh. hierarchy and, and that you are you know your role within that structure, you know, like you don't disobey not only your parents, but your siblings that are above you. So. You know, being the youngest, you really had to have a creative voice. And I, I know looking back now, I, I was able to do that in so many ways. I love music and I love to dance and I love to like perform. And uh, so I used to do that in front of my siblings and my parents. And, and looking back now, I knew there was a creative side of me trying to kind of express itself in a certain way. And now you came to the U.S., like you said, in, mm-hmm. um, in 1994. Yep. And you, you came here for school. You studied architecture at Cal Poly. Yes. Not right away. I, so when I came to the States, I had just finished high school in Ethiopia. And I came out here, and much to my dismay, actually, this is kind of a funny story. Not a lot of people know this story. But I came out here right after graduating high school. And I was still unsure of whether my parents, like, we weren't sure, they weren't sure whether I wanted to stay and do a two-year baccalaureate uh, diploma at the mm-hmm. high school that I was at, which basically gives you some college credits and it gives you better preparation for college and then you can transfer directly into any university kind of throughout the world. And that year would have been the first year that it was being offered in my school. So everybody was in limbo. People were worried that it was, was it a good program or was it not? So 
you know, while this was happening uh, that summer, my mother brought me to the States for vacation. Halfway through vacation, we were having a family meeting and my brothers, I remember it was me, my two of my older brothers and my sister and my mom. And we were talking about, all right, what do we do with, you know, his future? And does he go to school back home? And, and they actually asked me, like, what do you want to do? And I told mm-hmm. them, I want to stay here and go to school here. And they were like, okay. And kind of set the ball rolling. And we tried to, it was too late to enter into a four-year university at that time. So I actually went to junior college for about two years. I went to Santa Barbara City uh, City College for about a year and a half. Okay. And then Cuesta College in San Luis Obispo for about uh, a year. And then transferred into Cal Poly. And the reason why is Cal Poly had like one of the best architecture programs in the nation. It was probably, it's always ranked like top five, like, in, you know. And I knew I wanted to, or at least at the time, I thought I wanted to study architecture because, you know, my parents had seen that, you know, I like to express myself and, you know, I was into the arts and I wasn't really like a, I wasn't a great student, like per se. I'll get into why, but uh, at the time, like I just was more into like the kind of the making of things, I guess it was very apparent to them. So architecture was like a, a no brainer for me or them, apparently at the time. And so... Uh, I got into Cal Poly. I did. I was in my junior year when actually my dad had uh, terminal illness. He his kidneys failed, mm. which was kind of serendipitous because I hated architecture. <laughs> I was uh, in this program and I was like, you know, I loved the drafting of it and I loved the making of things and models and all these. That part was great. The part that I didn't like was like all the strength of materials stuff and and all these you know, things that you had to study in order to become, it was just, it was just, wasn't for me. All I wanted to do was like make things and build things and design things. And it turned out that you had to do like architecture history and like art appreciation, all these things, which were too, I don't know, just wasn't my thing. It wasn't my cup of tea. Anyhow. So when my dad got sick, you know, everybody, all my other brothers and sisters were already like either working or doing this and that. And I volunteered to uh, put school on hold and move to L.A. to take care of him as he's getting, uh, you know, treatment for his kidneys and dialysis and all this stuff. So long story short, as that was happening, I literally was like taking care of him full time. So I was with him morning, you know, noon through like evenings, like we were taking him to the hospital, bringing him back and talking to, you know, nutritionalists and all this kind of stuff and wasn't working, didn't work, didn't go to school for about I think about nine months or so, after which I got a call from a friend of mine who had, at the time, gotten a job. We attended school together at Cal Poly, and he was he had become a plant manager at this printing company. And he called my sister. He got her a job there, actually. And then he told her about this position that was opening up as a pre-press, like, production artist. And he, he you know, calls me up, and he says, do you know anything about design or you know, pre-press. And I'm like, no. Uh, and he's like, well, I can get you a job if you can, you know, show them that you can, you know how to use Freehand, this this application called Freehand, which later on became, I think, it well, Macromedia ended up buying it and then, you know, Adobe brought Macromedia. Anyhow, this is back in, I think, like 2000. So I'm dating myself. But anyway, I got the job. I, and it was crazy. So I, just to, just to kind of, set up the story. So I had literally no idea how to use this application. No idea. Never designed anything. It was it was like it was all like new to me. Like everything that I had done up until then was 
was like using Autodesk. You know, I, I was sketching. You know, I knew how to sketch pretty well, like mostly buildings <laughs> or like uh, just you know live objects and, and stuff like that. And and so I told him I'll do whatever I need to do to get this job. And didn't have a computer at the time. I didn't know anybody who had this application at the time, this, you know, this freehand program, whatever. And so I run down to the neighborhood Kinko's. And I think I remember how much I had in my account. It was like something like 20 something dollars that I had in my account. It was pathetic. And I used all of it to literally like sit down and teach myself. I, I used the manual they gave me. It had a manual for a freehand or, you know, I don't know what it was, but I literally like, learned how to like set up a page and like do all these shapes and like do clipping paths and like all these things like over a matter of two days, I think. And went in, got the interview. They sat me down in front of a computer and they're like, well, we want you to typeset this form. And they gave me like this like hand sketched form that they wanted me to like lay out. And then they left me alone in a room and like, a, a, you know, about half an hour later, they came back into the room and I showed them what I did. And they're like, great. Can you start next week? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> and that was my first gig. And I was, you know, my I started off as a production artist and a prepus typesetter. And so I guess before going, you know, really into work, I want to ask, do you feel like Cal Poly, even though you said you kind of hated architecture, do you feel like that college structure really sort of prepared you for what the working world would be like? In a lot of ways, yes, because it was, um, Cal Poly was a very hands-on, it was a technical school. So, you know, the outside of the you know classes like architecture history you know when when we did and honestly I, I feel like I've erased so much of it out of my like I deleted that program like literally like that architecture like school of thought like mm-hmm. but it did it did help me because they taught you how to think they taught you how to build you know we would have wood shop classes we'd have model making classes and it wasn't just theory it wasn't just you know, just the memorization of things, you know, it was really like they were a five-year accredited school. So basically by the time you're done in that architecture program, you are ready to be an architect. You were, uh, it was a great school. So looking back, absolutely. And the funny thing is, even though I didn't appreciate it then, I think architects in general have, are probably one of the best creative thinkers in my mind. Not that I had become an architect at that time because I never did become an architect. But really, like, and I've met so many really amazing architects that really know how to think creatively, and they know how to solve problems. I think in a lot of ways, and I, I remember an interview that I saw of uh, Charles Ames, he said, architects can really design anything, right? If you really think about it, everything is is a form, and if, whether it's apparel, whether it's clothes, whether it's a product, whether it's, you know, a 2D, two-dimensional, like, uh, if it's graphic design, it's really like you're... You're building something, and you're like uh, you're architecting it. <laughs> so yeah, it did help me. Long story short, absolutely. So what were some of the first gigs that you got right outside of school? I remember when I started this job. It was at, at this company called Safeguards. It was my, my first job as a as a production artist. <laughs> I my for my rite of passage, as with most designers that that really kind of are kind of making their own way, was gig posters <laughs> so i'd get like mm-hmm. dj friends or you know friends that were throwing parties and they needed a flyer and it was it's kind of man I, I i really hope none of those designs surface and i i, I don't think they'll ever will because uh, uh but uh 
that was kind of I remember my the beginnings were like people were just asking me to like design their wedding invitations and you know club party posters and stuff like that. So those those were a lot of the things that I did earlier on. Nothing great, but yeah. What was it like working for Adidas? That was probably one of my career highlights. That really <laughs> is an experience that honestly like I, I remember specifically like every day going into work and like really like thanking God that I was working there. It was an amazing experience. I, I was around a lot of brilliant people working on products that in a, in a company that I really loved and I enjoyed their products, you know, growing up, you know, I remember I have photos of me as like, you know, a four or five year old child and wearing Adidas. So it's very, not only was it close to me personally, but you know, is a brand that everybody knew. So it mm-hmm. was, it was really good. It was honestly, if, if I hadn't wanted to move out here to DC to be closer to family, I would still be there. And I still have a lot of friends there and, you know, you know, one of my mentors, uh, actually a couple of my mentors are still there. And uh, it was phenomenal. Well, talk to me about what you're doing now. I know that you have your own agency called BIM & Co. Yep. Can you talk to me more about that? Absolutely. So it really has been a culmination of everything that I've done up until now. So some of my agency experience, my experience at Adidas, my experience at uh, USA Today, which I had a, about a, a year and a half stint there. So it's a combination of really like branding web and kind of advertising so we when i went out on my own to start this agency the goal was really to start a creative agency that could really handle any creative that gets thrown at us Mm -hmm. and and it's a little ambitious i know and it's not hyper focused but really the idea was to to start off the foundation doing you know the core competencies of, of what i've been able to do over the past years which is branding and brand marketing, and really being able to to tell stories through graphic design, and so you know a lot of the work that I'm doing right now, and, and you know my agency's doing is is just that a lot of branding, and every once in a while we'll do you know a couple of video projects for clients. You know we do quite a bit of web work uh, for clients, a lot of websites, and but the sweet spot that we've found ourselves in is really doing integrated campaigns for our clients. So we've had a couple of subcontracting clients that we've gotten through another agency where they would hire us to to do the whole shebang and we've been doing naming branding you know everything from identity to you know the style guides so like really kind of working on the tone and the voice and the personality of a brand and what it should be and what it's what it's meant to be and then really executing that on all the different fronts so on web mobile advertising whether it's um, you know out of home or digital or print, really trying to do a lot of those different touch points. And we've had a couple of these really big campaigns, which we're going to be rolling out on our website, uh, case studies on our website pretty soon. We've just been so busy to be able to update the site, but it's definitely coming. Okay. Yeah. How do you choose your clients? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I have um, everything, <laughs> honestly, everything so far has been through word of mouth, like we've been getting referrals from existing clients and then um, also connections. Man, This is so weird. So this was one of my questions like that I would ask a lot of entrepreneurs or like, you know, you know, startups and almost universally all of them would tell me like network, network. Ne-. And it was like, I, I dreaded that word. I'm just like a uh, network. Just like, what does that mean? I don't even know what, what, what does that look like? You know, how do you even network? Like what is, and honestly, I kid you not, the more I'm going out and the more I'm meeting people, 
the the more like kind of people know about what I do, the more recommendations come through. So the last two, two the last two big projects that came in were came in through referrals, and both of those clients didn't vet me. They didn't do all they went on was the person that recommended me. They they took his word and they're working with us and they, you know they're happy. And so my advice to anybody who's trying to start their own thing is really like get the word out there, go and mingle with people, talk to people, and it pays dividends. I remember going out to a talk in D.C. about a year and a half ago. It was nothing in our industry. It was it was about public-private government funding. And I saw that. I'm like, I wonder if that means that they will fund like startups. Like, uh, Honestly, I, I approached it from a, like a very self-serving standpoint. And I went there and it ended up being this guy from the State Department was talking about how they basically partner with, you know, companies that do, th- you know, things that align with their interests. So, for example, if you were, you know, trying to save the trees and they have an initiative trying to save the trees, then they will give you money to do that. So I was a little disappointed that I, you know, I, you know, <laughs> it didn't apply for me. But they opened the uh, talk to uh, questions at the end, and no, everybody was asking these really, really boring like questions about, you know, like I don't, know, I just didn't find them interesting. So I thought, well, I have nothing to lose. Let me just get up and tell them why I'm here. So I got up and, <laughs> and I told them, hey, you know, I, I'm an entrepreneur. I started my own agency, and you know, honestly, I came here because I thought the State Department also has initiatives where they're trying to help startups and small agencies. And like, if you have any advice, I'd love to hear it. And, it like you know, it kind of got a little bit of a laugh, and it ended up him and I had an interaction there. And you know, he kept on asking me questions. What do you do? And this is in front of, mind you, like 200, 300, 400 people. And I told him what I did, and I, get, I pretty much gave him my agency pitch. And he was like, "Come talk to me after this is over." I was like, "Okay." And you know, a couple other people asked questions, and the show was over. And he came up to me and he said, here's my card. Call me on you know next week, whatever, Monday or whatever it was. And he's been one of my biggest clients since then. Not only that, but he's also been like, uh, like you know, we call each other on the weekends. He's, mm-hmm. he's an Ethiopian who's basically doing a lot of grassroots programs outside of the State Department as well. Nice. So I got involved in his nonprofit. And through him, I've gotten two or three referrals that literally have paid the bills and like are keeping the lights on so connections and networking man i can't emphasize that just get out there and like talk to people and like be with people and and just present yourself in a in a positive light and and by the way back it up like <laughs> if you're saying you're gonna call somebody call somebody you know and if, and if they give you a project like do it right and that's been my kind of approach to things gotcha yeah. What's like a typical day like for you, if that exists? Um, what would that look like for you? <laughs> it kind of exists. So I generally, I'm not a huge morning person, but I, I normally, I'm up and about by around eight. I normally make it into the office around somewhere between 9.30, 9.45-ish, sometimes earlier if I have meetings. But a lot of times um, I'm pretty, I'm there until, you know, seven o'clock usually. A typical day has about one, maybe two client calls or meetings. The rest of the time, you know, I have one full-time designer that works on-site, another freelancer, and then two other freelancers that work off-site. So we do a lot of concept sessions. You know, we'll get in a room and, and kind of do status updates and, 
you know, like if we're working on concepts for you know, whatever, whether, whether it's a brand or an ad campaign or whatever, a web project, we kind of spend a lot of time in these like uh, social like or co-working spaces. And then we kind of get back to our desks and, and then hustle. <laughs> so lots of design on the computer. But um, a good, I would say a good 10 or 20% of the day is uh, client meetings and emails and, you know, also focusing on new business and making sure that I'm staying in touch with people that I'm doing business with or people that I, I know have work, you know, coming up. So I'll, I'll check up on them, whether it's phone call, text or email. And then, you know, you got that 1% or maybe a little bit more than 1% of the day where I'm on social social, <laughs> social media or messing around. But generally, like I have a fairly good balance of uh, live work kind of lifestyle. So I, I try not to work too much. I did that in my agency days when I was at Ziba Design and I burnt myself out and I did quite a bit of that at Adidas. So now just trying to really balance it out. I, I you know, my, you know, when I started this agency, I had a very clear vision and philosophy around how I wanted to run it. And so, you know, my goal is, you know, as I'm bringing more designers on the team, I have a very strict rule of like, you know, three weeks of paid vacation, you know, making sure that, you know, if they absolutely need to work from home for whatever the reason, like no questions asked, mm -hmm. just get the work done. I don't micromanage, you know, so they're, it's a pretty loose environment and we, you know, we work in a really cool office space in DC. So it's, it's a pretty lax work day basically, but there's a lot of clocking in for, to do like a uh, work at the computer, but also spending some time on the grease board. Yeah. I've actually been not to, to where your offices are, but I've been close to that because I believe the building you're in is in the same block as Vox Media. Yeah. Yes. It is. They're one of, and they're one of my clients. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's a small world. Yeah. I've been, I've definitely been over that way before. Yeah. I've, they're doing a lot of cool work and uh yeah there's it's it's a great like area where my office is i have like i said great office space but there's also uber just moved into three of our floors and what else there's the case foundations upstairs from us so it's it's definitely a space that people enjoy working in so it's like mm -hmm. good companies in there too well just like you're saying like you have to kind of get out there and i totally agree with that i feel like i'm doing the same thing Myself this year, I told myself I would go to at least one event locally every month just to kind of get back out there because a lot of the work that I've done has been like retainer work mm. and it's been pretty steady. Mm. So while my work is seen everywhere, I was like, yeah, I don't really feel like I have to go out and like cultivate leads because I'm getting paid every month. You know, it mm -hmm. didn't kind of yeah. kind of make sense for you. What is and this is sort of a non sequitur now, but. What is the design scene like in DC for you? Like like at this stage in your career? It's 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 a very the landscape in DC is is very it's not sexy. It's uh so com <laughs> coming <laughs> I'm trying to be as positive as I can. So just to give you some background, so I, I was at Adidas for six years and Ziba Design for two years before that, all in Portland. So total of about eight years in Portland. Portland has some of the best designers the best developers like some of the best agencies it was and not only that but like the client too like a lot of like really fun sexy clients like nike adidas leaning was there the the chinese uh, footwear competitor there's a bunch like i don't know why i'm drawing a blank now but wyden and kennedy's there like you know one of the probably the the most the best creative ad agency that i know of so going from there to, to dc was 
in a way, I, which I knew what I was getting myself into. It was it was a bit of like a career suicide from my like a lot of all of my friends were telling me, "Why are you doing this?" It didn't make any sense for them, but I I knew what I was getting myself into because spiritually I was in the mindset of like, okay, I'm gonna be here for family and just kind of be closer to like my community. So I take it with a grain of salt, but it's it's a tough, tough creative city in the sense that a lot of the work that you get out here is nonprofit, government, or uh, like subcontracting for one of those two. There's a lot of farmer work as well, which is again not sexy. However, farmer, pharma, like, like a ph- pharmaceutical. Sorry. Oh, pharmaceutical. Yeah. Okay, yeah. And but here's the here's the kind of what I'm noticing or what I'm sensing, which is like mm-hmm. there is a lot of like new startups in DC. A lot of technology companies are moving to the Virginia area, and so there's like. There's now, like, you can kind of sense, like, there's, like, a creative community growing. There's young designers that are moving to D.C. And the cool thing is these traditional, like, nonprofits are now wanting to do more creative work. Because they're now, you you start seeing these nonprofits that are run by, like, that are started by, like, a 25-year-old who, you know, has, like, this amazing plan to save the world versus, like, uh, back, I think, a few years back, the nonprofits were really started by a lot of either senators or like guys that were in politics. So it's like, there's a lot of kind of this old school mentality. Right. But in, especially if you go to like these uh, co-working spaces, like we work and canvas and what's this other one? Uh, Something hub, I forget. You can sense all these really young um, startups and nonprofits, which want to do cool and fun and sexy work versus like the same old, like a, jargony like very like monotoned kind of creative so it's Mm -hmm. it's been a struggle but there's a lot of hope i've I've been able to find some pretty cool clients here but i also you know reach out to my network on the other side of the coast and i've been fortunate to be able to get some work from that side as well but um it's tough man it's a tough city to be a creative a true creative in interesting would you say that there's anything that you regret doing or anything that you regret not doing, I should say, due to fear. And, and the reason that I'm asking this is because it seems like a lot of the moves that you've made have been particularly fearless yeah. in terms of like moving from Ethiopia here to the States and then being down there in California and then moving up to Portland and working <laughs> and then even still moving from Portland out to D.C. Like each of these can be pretty drastic changes in terms of like your social scene and friendships and things of that nature. But has there ever been anything that you just regret not doing because you were scared to do it? I can honestly tell you, and and this is a conversation that I have with a lot of friends who, you know, I've talked to some friends who are like on the verge of making some major decisions. I don't remember the last time I was afraid to try something. Like I, I, I knew there was a time, but I don't remember when it was. <laughs> 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 and there definitely was. But and I'll tell you, early on in my career, one of the reasons why I came out to the States and decided to stay was just necessity. Like, I just knew this is what I wanted to do. The desire to want kind of outweighed the desire or the, the fear of, of doing, right? So there was a fear. but And the more that I fed that desire, the, the less I was afraid. And also, like, really, a lot of my decisions in the past were kind of forced. It was, even though I, I don't want to say forced, it was like a tough call. Like I had to stop going to school to take care of my dad. 
And then mm-hmm. when I moved up to Oregon, one of the reasons why I did that, which is a very personal reason, which I, I don't mind disclosing, but I had lost my brother in a car accident in Ethiopia, who mm-hmm. who I was like extremely close to. Like he was honestly like more of a father figure to me than than my father. Really, like he was. We were like I mean we grew up together. Like I used to sleep in his bed when when I was scared. You know, like that. We were like very like we were. It was an amazing experience. Him and I actually lived together for a year when I was going to college in California and then he moved to Ethiopia. And when he passed, like I knew I couldn't stay by myself in LA. At, I was in LA at the time. So I moved mm-hmm. up to Portland to live with my brother. And so those decisions, even though they were tough decisions and they were, it was a complete change of scene, they were kind of almost forced, like my circumstances kind of forced them. However, in those decisions, I realized, man, like, I can do I can do pretty much anything I want to do. I can live anywhere I want to live. I can I can make anything that I want to make out of my life. And also the progress of my career going from like a a production artist to a you know a producer to a designer to an art director to a, like everybody told me it's not you can't do it. Literally you have to go to school and become like a go to design school and stuff like that. So fear for me honestly like and doesn't really like dictate my decisions for yeah. And also, like honestly, I'm I'm a Christian. I'm a Bible reading, like praying Christian, and and I really do believe like fear is like <laughs> that. That's not the, a source that I like that has authority over me. Like you know, I really do believe that God has authority over my life. So any decision that I make, really, I kind of put God before me, and I, and I go forward. So in a sense, you know, I don't let that affect my decisions, like fear of you know failing or whatever. Another example I'll give you is when I went from Adidas and I moved out to DC, you know, like I was doing freelance work and the first like freelance project that I worked on, or actually it was like the second or third was for USA Today. And they were like, we want to hire you. And I'm like, sorry, I'm not going to, you know, my goal is not to work for like, you know, a newspaper company, which is what a lot of people perceive them as. And then when I found out about all the rebranding stuff that they wanted to do and all the cool stuff, and I said, you know what? Why? Why would I be afraid to like work at a brand that's perceived by most people as a brand that's dying, right? And mm-hmm. especially after I knew what types of projects that I was going to work on when I went there, because I could really look, I could show somebody saying, "Hey, here's what I did for USA Today," and a lot of that work was was really good. And I thought, and so fear, I definitely don't let it control me. However, it's real and. I am a person who experiences fear, <laughs> but yeah, sorry. So Long, no, no, yeah. no, no, that was, yeah. that was, a, I mean, that's a, a great response. Yeah. Something that you just mentioned and also yeah. this sort of, I, I picked up on this in the bio that you sent yeah. me as well as on your Twitter bio about being a Christian, loving Jesus, reading the Bible, being a Christ follower. And I've, I've asked this of other people that I've interviewed who also have kind of put that out there. And, and I, I'm saying put it out there, not that it is a, a bad thing, but they have, you know, made sure to mention as part of their work, their faith. Have there been any benefits or downsides to you kind of publicly stating your faith as it relates to your work? Absolutely not, man. You know, what's crazy is that um, for the longest time is like I was, <sighs> let, let me pre- preface this. So if you would have asked me like, Six years, seven years ago, you're Christian. I'll be like, yes. However, I wasn't really. I was just a church warm, you know, like a, I was just warming the seats on Sundays at church. You know, mm-hmm. I was like, when I really started like finding my identity, 
in Christ, everything changed because now I could live like comfortable, like I can live openly and just be really like say that there, you know, like my life is an open book. You know, there's whether you find me, you know, like at work or in a restaurant or in a you know social setting, I identify myself as a Christian, Ethiopian, designer, creative, and, you know, family guy, whatever, right? So it, it's part of my identity, but it's not only is it part of my identity, it's at the root of my identity. And the more, like, kind of authentic I became to that, the more real I became and the more I read and the more I really made sure to have a relationship with God, mm-hmm. people around me respected that. Like, people at work respected that because they know, okay, like, you know, they know ethically I would make good decisions, you know? Like, they know, like... And they see me, like, you know, we'd have lunch in the cafeteria, and I'll pray before I eat. And then, like, yeah. you know, if I did anything contrary to that pattern of, like, my walk, you know, they can call me out on on it. And they didn't because they understood, like, I lived it. And one of the best advices that I got was I was at uh, Weapons of Mass Creation last year, and uh, okay. which I recommend to any designer. Like, go. I'm, I'm gonna... I spoke there in 2014. Did you really? Yeah, yeah. It, it's isn't it great? Is like isn't that one of like the best conferences for a design? Yeah, it's a good conference. Yeah. So I went there last year. It was my first year, and I met this like hunk of a character. He's from Georgia. I don't know if you know him, uh, Mike Jones. Do you know Mike Jones? Yeah, creative style. Not the not the rapper Mike Jones. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, I know what you're talking about. So, I know exactly what you're talking so about. Yeah, yeah. Here yeah. comes Mike Jones. He gets on the stage. And, like, you know, this big, burly, like, you know, football player, built like a football player dude, gets on the stage. Uh-huh. And he's a, he's one of the keynotes. And the first slide that he that he puts up on the screen, and he goes, the reason why I'm here is because this man right here. And this big, you know, really cool, beautiful font face that it says Jesus. And I was like, I was like, wow. That was like, I felt like that took so much courage because you're in a room with, like, 500 graphic designers most of them are probably like hardcore atheists and everybody clapped it was crazy it was like it gave me the chills and after the talk by the way mike and i have been talking like almost every other week since creative south we've like really connected it's been awesome and i asked him how do you do it actually after he gave the talk so they opened it up to questions and i said how are you able to maintain your christianity at work where you're surrounded by like very like differing opinions you know a lot of times in design you know even when we're searching for inspiration we come across so many different things that are kind of morally objectable you know mm-hmm. and he gave me really good advice he says you do you <laughs> and i was like elaborate please <laughs> he's like just <laughs> do your thing man he's just be the most authentic version of you that you can be and mm-hmm. and if my identity in christ is authentic people people respect it and i've seen that people respect it and they love it and you know, I treat people with respect and I treat people with the love and kindness that I believe that I'm, I'm learning about. So honestly, it's been a great source for me and it's it's really helped me as I'm working because I also like, I try to meditate when I'm working. I try to like, you know, pray internally, <laughs> you know, I'll be like designing or sketching or whatever. And I'll, I'll really like try to focus on the word. A lot of times I'm listening to podcasts, uh, yours being one of them, but I'll also listen to some teachers that, uh, you know, of the word and stuff like that. So it's been anything but negative for you know in the work space. I haven't noticed any pushback. No, it's it's good that that you mentioned that because no. the the people that I have um have spoken to about it have been folks that are 
Well, the first thing is interesting. They've, they've all been men, mm. uh, but they've been men that are sort of in different kind of parts of their career. So uh, one guy that I interviewed actually it was in January of last year. He's a letterer in South Carolina. His name is uh, Marcus Williamson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I came across his work from, uh, I think he was at uh, Weapons of Mass Destruction at one point, I think. Okay, yeah. He uh, he does a lot of lettering work, yeah. and like we talked about that sort of same thing because he does work for for churches and, and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. The other person who I interviewed who also has like a really strong Christian faith is Jeffrey Maynou, who is in Ghana, in Accra. Oh, nice. And so we, we sort of spoke about that same thing because a lot of the work that, that he does is around like entrepreneurship mm-hmm. and business and design, but also like he's he's very, I don't want to say adamant, but, but certainly he is just as passionate about his faith and expressing that as he is about business and design, uh, et cetera. And for both of those guys, they kind of both said the same thing. Like it did not in any sort of way prevent them from doing their work. There was no sort of a conflict, which I really respect that. I I mean, I respect that it has not been a problem for them, especially in this sort of time. You know, you think about where we are right now, where religion tends to have so many conflicts with just everyday life. And so it's kind of refreshing to hear that, for, for these two people that are really about their faith, and for you as well, that it has not been a deterrent in any sort of way. Yeah, I think the big difference really is is not just talking the talk, but like you have to be able to walk the walk, you know, with, and it's, a, you know, honestly, I, I feel like, you know, my kind of, I came to a sense of maturity or confidence in that because, you know, God has been able to help me like understand the word and like really pray and like have a relationship with him. If that if it was just a Sunday thing, like mm-hmm. I would, um, that's what it was for the most of my life. I, I would have just been a fake because yeah. I was, you know, I was partying. I used to DJ, and I still profess to be like, you know, like whatever, you know, I was Christian. And I, I, if you're gonna do it, anything, whether it's design, whether it's like, um, you know, uh, if you're gonna paint, if you're gonna do anything, just do it fully, right? And so. I when I decided to commit and like really turn around my life, and this this happened about three years ago, everything changed. I just had a level of confidence in knowing that this is where I'm going to root my identity, and it was part of me. And it was very different in how I had gone about it in the past. I think when you become a student of of something and you have a passion of something, it's very different than when you're passive about something. And again, this goes with anything. This goes with design. This goes with photography. This goes when you're a student and passionate about it. Just like anything else, Christianity is is just that. And ignorance is like probably our biggest enemy in any category of our life, and it's no different in Christianity. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of, of students, I know we do have a lot of, yeah. of students and people that listen to the show. What kind of advice would you give to someone that is just starting out in this industry? Honestly, like I, my thing is, and again, I, I still feel like I'm a student of, of design. Like none of us get, get, I don't think any of us get to the point where we're like, all right, I'm, I'm at my, my peak, right? I, I feel like I'm still like, you know, growing in a lot of ways. I have a lot of learnings and a lot of expertise, but what I would say is like, get hungry, man. Like, and don't, don't get overwhelmed by what you don't know. Like, you know, I think a lot of times, you know, and I see this with young designers is they never feel like that they're going to get to that certain point in their career. Right. Or like to be the or the complete opposite is like they want to become an art director tomorrow. Yeah. My advice is the same to both of those. I'm like, listen, you can't. One of the most uh, kind of inspiring talks about a couple of years ago on 99U, 
by Mark Echo, which I recommend everybody watch it. But I remember this thing that he said, which stuck to me, and I, I keep, you know, I really believe in, and this is true, which, which is, he said something like, you can't hack excellence, right? And so we're all, we're all trying to kind of, we're like running towards that mark of excellence, right? And it's just weird. Some of us might just be ahead of others. And so for those just starting out, just start, just do. Yeah, the stuff might not be great today, but just keep hungry, keep doing it. And do anything that helps you nurture that creativity, whether it's, you know, watching tutorials on YouTube, because there's so many of them nowadays. You want to, like, learn how to Photoshop something or whatever. Watch, you know, like, listen to inspirational speakers, like, listen to podcasts like yours. That You know, there's so many people that are trying to get, give good advice. Be hungry. Be inquisitive. Just kind of try to eat up as much <laughs> inspiration as you can i really would recommend that young designers and even like matured and you know like creative director level creatives go to you know some of these conferences that we talked to like uh, talked about like uh, uh, weapons of mass creation is a great one to go to i'm actually going to creative south this year which uh, is a conference that mike jones is putting together it's in georgia yeah. it's in Atlanta, right it's in columbus columbus exactly yeah and it takes, yeah, it takes place in yeah. april so i'll be out there in april you know, the AIGA conference is awesome. Go check that out. Just And get plugged in into the creative community locally, too. Like, there's people everywhere doing cool stuff. Like, try to find, mm-hmm. you know, those people and reach out to them and grab coffee with them. You know, I I remember somebody once told me, he's like, the, the worst thing to ever be asked by somebody is, is, can I be your mentor? Because it puts anybody, like, it makes anybody feel uncomfortable, right? But it's so much easier to say, hey... Can we grab some coffee? <laughs> I just wanna I just wanna pick your brain. It's it's a much easier conversation. And I've done that with so many people. I've done what done that with people who I didn't even think would be clients and they ended up becoming a client. So just if you if there's anybody interesting that, that that you guys hear about, reach out to them, grab coffee, keep an inquisitive mind and and just kind of eat up anything creative. If I can add an addendum to that, because yeah. uh I often will get those requests mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> where people yeah, say, can I just yeah. pick your brain? And like, from, and not that they are, yeah. are bad requests, yeah. but oftentimes just because of what my work day is, yeah, yeah. it's like, oh, do I have time for this? I would recommend that if you're going to do that, like be specific in your intention. Yeah, that's true. So that way I'm not just wondering like, okay, is this just a blind meet? Like, what are we talking yeah. about? Like, what is it that, that you want? And it, it it just helps the other person so they know whether or not to yeah. accept the request. Like we're not being mean when we ask you like, well, what, what is it that you want? Cause like we have to take time out of our day, out of yeah. our workflow. We have other projects, et cetera. And it's not that we don't want to meet and kind of pay it forward. It's just, it's sort of like, you know, when you, when you try to send someone a LinkedIn request, mm-hmm. exactly, but you don't <laughs> fill out the actual <laughs> thing. Like, and, and it's funny because like the, even the New Yorker yeah, has yeah. had, has made jokes about this where you just get that default. Yeah. I'd like to, you know, yeah. uh, be your professional contact or whatever on LinkedIn. And I'm like, who is this person? Yeah. And why? <laughs> and, and like, for me, I always fill that out. I always will say, Hey, this is X, Y, Z from such and such. I'm, you know, let's connect because of X, Y, Z, just cause I feel like that would make it easier yeah, yeah. than just the random, you know, I want to be your professional connection <laughs> I totally or, or whatever. And also, uh, and also, there's also the times where I'm sure, and you get this quite a bit too, where, where somebody just sends you a message and it's like, there's no like plan. It's just like, hey, I'd love yeah. to meet you. And I'm like, it's so much easier to say, hey, when are you available? You know, just let me know when your calendar is available. I just want to talk to you for 15 minutes. 
Right. Which isn't give me a, an easy answer. Yeah. You're like, next Thursday, I'm available at five, right? It's like, right. and it's done. So it's e- easier to do that. I have a guy that I really look up to. He lives in Portland. He's, he's a brilliant, brilliant mind. I know he's crazy busy. I bombard him. I text him. I email him. And I'm like, yo, when are we going to grab coffee? I'm in town for three days. I'm available this day. And I'll hit him up that morning. I'm like, and the funny thing is he'll, he'll text me back. He's like, all right, where are you at right now? And I'm like, damn, I'm, I'm like doing all these things. <laughs> but I know it's important. So I'll, I'll put aside whatever I got going on and I'll meet with him. But he sees that hustle and he respects it. You know, nobody's going to be annoyed by like a barrage of emails. And sometimes, yeah, we I'm busy and I, I've been trying to link up with somebody that a friend recommended uh, the last couple of weeks. And I try to link up with her and, and she got a code and she canceled and, and try to link up with her again. And she didn't respond. And then she told me she was out of town. And then... And now it's like I'm playing chase and I'm like, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's tough to do, but uh, just make it easy on the person that you're trying to connect with. That's what I'd say. Yeah, yeah. please please make it easy. Yeah. Just make it easy. Yeah. And it's a, a small thing to yeah. do. Like we're, we're not mind readers. Yeah, like yeah. we do want to help, but yeah, like exactly. let us know how best we can help. Yeah. So we're not just kind of taking a shot in the dark there. Absolutely. I just want to add addendum to what you were saying. Absolutely. I want to talk about conferences yeah. because in our Slack chat. Yep. In our, in our Slack room, we actually, I mean, we talked about this, I think, fairly recently. We discussed conferences because someone wanted to know, they said, as a minority, like, what is the what are the best conferences to go to? And I felt that that was just a really kind of broad question because, I mean, when you're saying minorities, that could be, mm-hmm. are you saying because you're, you're black or because yeah, you're a woman yeah. or because you're something else? Like, ask, like, what's the main reason that you would want to go to a conference for someone that I guess has that same question. What is it about conferences that you really like that you get out of? Well, you know, I want to say something too is as much as me being a minority is part of my identity, you know, I'm not going to let anybody put that label on me. Honestly, like for me, our goal, all of our goals, like all of us, like minorities, our goal is to be respected by our work is not to be respected because we're minorities. So for me, the right question would be like, What's the best conference to go to? You know what I mean? Like, I want to go see where the best are speaking. Because that objective is a little different. Now, if I want to go where, you know, I want to be around people like me that are like, you know, we don't really have a platform uh, and we're really like making something, building something ourselves is a very different question. But the answer for why go to conferences, and this is generally my goal of, of why I listen to any podcasts, why I even honestly, even with my faith, like what is, you know, why am I practicing my faith? Why do I read my Bible? Why do I pray? And why do I have a community that supports me? Right. It's, it boils down to three things. And you and I had talked about this slightly before the talk is inspiration, education, and connection. <laughs> and mm-hmm. if you boil down, if you boil down any of the things that you do outside of work, you should be getting hopefully all, all three of those. Sometimes one in more doses than the other. But ideally, like, you know, the, what I'm trying to get out of things that are outside of work are those three things. And ideally, you know, hopefully people out of this conversation that you and I are having, too, can get that as well. I think so. Yeah. I think people will listen and they'll, yeah. they'll get that. Are you satisfied creatively? Do you feel like with, with the work that you're doing right now and, and where you're at in your life that you are, are satisfied with what you do? I struggle with the word satisfied. If by satisfied you mean, are you enjoying what you're doing? I absolutely am enjoying what am I doing, what I am doing. If you're saying, 
is this where I want to be? And like, you know, keep at this level? No, like absolutely. Nowadays, I feel like, you know, there's so much that you can do creatively. Like the access of things is like ridiculous, right? Like if you want to be a filmmaker now, you can be a filmmaker with like a thousand bucks. It might not be Hollywood production level, but you'll be like, you can draw a crowd and, and keep them happy if you do it right. Mm-hmm. If you want to be a musician, like, I mean, like, you can become an instant, like, you know, YouTube star, famous, whatever, right? So the access yeah. of things has, is so, is such an amazing level now. It just kind of piques my curiosity a lot more. So absolutely in the sense of satisfaction, I want, I want to do more. And I, film is definitely one of those platforms that I'm really, like, experimenting with now. I've been, you know, like renting equipment online and like just shooting over the weekend and just like just trying to get an eye for things because do mm-hmm. I do quite a bit of photography studio as well as just like outside and so no creatively I'm I'm still man I, no man I, there's so much out there to do I just I want to do it all man I just <laughs> there's a place in Silver Spring which is about half an hour away from DC that it's like a studio where you can come in and you can learn how to silk screen and like letterpress and stuff like that. And so every, mm. every few months I go up there and I just like kind of brush up my skills on how to, you know, letterpress. I, I love doing letterpress. And I just like it. And it's just so tactile and just like touch and feel and smell and like the paint and the cleaning. It's it's so cool. And, and like it gives you like just uh, it's like meditation for me. But creativity, man, there's there's so much to it. And just no, definitely not satisfied. <laughs> so you're trying to be like, I guess, with the with the film, you're going to be like the next ryan coogler or, or the next uh, ava duvernay i want to be me man i want to do me <laughs> <laughs> uh, like i said that was probably the best advice that, that mike gave me like i just i just want to do me man I, I remember you know the funny thing is i remember when i was a kid and just kind of going back to like creativity i remember staring up at the ceiling like at night and we had these like paneled ceilings uh-huh. i remember very visually like being able to imagine out in one of those panels my own like whatever scene or like you know cowboys and indians or whatever i was going through at that Mm -hmm. time so like you know i definitely know that i have some expression that i'd like to translate into other mediums and film is definitely like probably the next closest thing to my heart Uh, one thing that i used to do because it's funny you mentioned that about the ceiling so my grandmother had these like they're called popcorn ceilings and it's the kind of ceilings where you, you sort of see all these little white yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. bumps and yeah. valleys and intrusions. because they call it a popcorn ceiling. Yeah. And every time I would look at that, I would see certain – it's sort of like looking at clouds. <laughs> and you're like, oh, that looks like a, a hammer. That looks like whatever. I would look and I would see yeah. different things in there. And like during the day, I, when I went and saw it, I would get up and draw it on there so I would know that I could see That's it again. That's hilarious. So there would That's be hilarious. all these little like ceiling drawings. Yeah. That didn't go over a... well. <laughs> <laughs> that went over about as well as you think it would be in being young and drawing on the ceiling. Like, That's what, hilarious. What's that about? You know, the funny thing is like uni- almost universally, if you were to ask anybody in any field, like, you know, and there's a you know, I'm the only like kind of creative minded person. Although, you know, like I have a couple of siblings that are just amazing writers and my brother can pretty much do whatever he wants to do like he he's he's a pretty good sketcher but he's never pursued that he's like you know he went to law school if you universally if you were to ask anybody you know what their childhood was like you would realize that almost everybody had like this creative in them trying to 
burst out. It just was never given an opportunity. They were never given an opportunity to express that in a, in a way. And now they grow up and they're like, I don't have a creative bone in my body and I'm, I can't draw. And I'm like, you can't, you know, and I heard at Creative Weapons of Mass Creation, I heard the saying that one of the speakers said, he said, you can't draw because you don't draw. And it's so true. Right. It's so true, right. you know? And nothing, nobody, like, comes out of the womb with a paintbrush, you know? Like, it's just, you'll be surprised if you, like, and I'm a horrible sketcher, but the, I've been doing, over the last three years, I've, I've been doing it more and more and more and more now. And I've seen my evolution of, like, actually, it's not, you know, it's not as bad to look at as it used to be. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's about cultivating. I yeah. mean, like, here in, I mean, particularly here in the States, when you're a kid, yeah. A lot of your early primary education, so much of it is around art. Absolutely. It's, it's finger painting, it's drawing, it's coloring. And it's really only as you start to get older that that ends up being phased out yeah, completely. Like I think by the time I got to high school, yeah. uh, we didn't have an art class or, or anything like that. I mean, I was in gifted classes, yeah. so we had at least the opportunity to express you know different things like that computer programming and things of that nature but yeah it's so interesting we start out in this way where we're doing all of this creative expression and then eventually it just kind of dies out yeah that's a good in point in favor of, view. Of, of other subjects and stuff that's a really good point of view so you probably did that as a kid like you probably painted and stuff as a kid right yeah we had painting yeah. we had i mean uh, so I, I remember vividly doing a lot of painting and drawing yeah. And coloring. By the time I got to maybe I think second or third grade, this is when the Apple IIe came yeah. out. And in our gifted courses, we did computer programming. So like I learned basic. I learned how to do like basic computer graphics. Even like up to like middle school, we had wood shop. Oh, wow. So I was able to like do stuff with wood. And like my grandfather is a carpenter. So it was I sort of already had knowledge of a lot of this stuff, wow. like using table saws and woods and miter joints and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, by the time I got to high school, I mean, we had supercomputing and things like that in our high school, but we didn't have anything that I recall that was art. I think we had like drama club. We had drafting, like like engineering drafting. Mm. We didn't have any art stuff. The only sort of artistic thing we had was either choir or band. Yeah. And I was in the band. Yeah. It's, so that was like the closest thing. But yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. And honestly, I feel like most of my African-American friends and just like African friends in general, we have a much, I think our aptitude for expression is a little higher. <laughs> Try to, <laughs> you know, does that make sense? Like uh -huh. we're just a little bit more vibrant. Like, you know, and I get together with my Ethiopian friends and like, you know, my friends out here in D.C. Like we're just very expressive people to begin with. And yeah. I feel like if we were just like empowered creatively, like, oh man, just the potential. The, I, the notion that like, that really like, we really could change the world in a lot of ways. But it's it's very encouraging to see a lot of these up and coming, like amazing creatives that are, you know, I went to a talk recently here in DC, uh, Eddie Opara from Pentagram came out and gave a talk. Yeah, We're out there, man, but it's just like, you know, and I really honestly like hats off to you for what you're doing because you really are giving us a platform to be able to mm -hmm. inspire each other. Like, you know, and I've been, I heard about you like about three weeks ago and in the last three weeks I've just been binge listening to your podcast, you know? Oh <laughs> it is just encouraging to hear that like there are like people out there doing really cool stuff that, that are like me, they look like me and they're like interested in the same thing. It's really encouraging because a lot of times the idea, the, what the, even the media paints of like us in the movies, it's like, yeah. I can't relate to 90% of these characters in the movies. Like, 
You know what I mean? Like, I'm not a football player. I'm not like uh-huh. like the world class lawyer, like kind of the guy with the mansion on the hill. Like, and I, I look at all these movies that are depict like black males in a way that I'm just like, it's so there's such a huge disconnect. And I remember mm-hmm. first coming like to this country, and I remember watching movies like uh, Love Jones or like Love and Basketball, and and I was yeah, like, yeah. man, that's like I could see myself like in those roles, and I'm like, uh-huh. and it's 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 great to be able to see other professionals that that are minorities, you know, not just like black. I'm just talking about women too. It's so encouraging to be able to see people that haven't been given platforms. I'm just, and I'm not hating. And I, it's funny. I had this conversation. I might be sidetracking a little bit here, but no, I, I had this conversation ahead. with, so I, I work in an, I have a space in an agency that's been kind enough to give me some space to work out of, which is awesome. And I love it. And I, you know, I have a really good relationship with the writer there and he's, you know, white guy and he's, you know, we jabs, you know, like you know, we talk, we talk very candidly to each other. Mm-hmm. And I was telling him, because he's a very smart guy. He's a writer, a copywriter. And I, I really value his opinion. I'm like, yo, yeah, well, Bill, you know, I'm going on the show where, you know, it's really like, it's a really awesome show. It's a podcast and it's it's like, a, uh, you know, supporting minorities and stuff like that. And he was like, he jokingly said, well, can I get on there? I'm like, hey, I don't think you're a minority, bro. And he was like, I knew where the conversation was going because he was like, <laughs> oh and I've had this conversation with some of my other white friends before where it's like, yeah, you know, like, what's up with the Wiz, dude? It's like, it's an all black cast. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Oh. And they're like, what if, you know, we had a Wizard of Oz that was like an all white cast? And I'm like, that's exactly what it was. <laughs> that's what the Wizard of Oz is, right. But, but it's so misunderstood because really, like, all it is is that we're saying, like, we just want to, you know, we want to make roles for ourselves because nobody's really giving us these roles. Right. And I used to always say, you know, like, I mean, why is there a BET or why is there like a minority thing? You know, like, why can't we just be like with everybody? And the reality is like the people running the show don't look like us, don't act like us. They don't know what we go through and they don't empower us. They empower the people that are like them and they go to the same schools that they do in the same neighborhood that they grew up in. And so really shows like yours really give us a voice in a way that we can connect and inspire each other and and say, hey. You know, like, let's make a difference. And someday, hopefully, we can do away with those things that, like, separate us and say there is no longer a minority thing. It's just a thing. You know, it's like a – it's one platform for all of us, and it's yeah. equal. But really, hats off to you, and I really appreciate what you're doing, and it's it's been really cool listening to your show. Thank you, man. Yeah. Thank you. I, I would say, like, you see, you, you listened to Eddie, um, episode 125, which was a while back, is with Kojo Botang. And he and Eddie went to school together. Oh, nice! And they went to, I think they went yeah, to yeah, university yeah. I heard together. Bo- but they've, yeah, I heard the Kojo yeah. episode. It was recent, right? It was like a yeah, yeah, yeah. And they've they've known each other for for a long time. That's awesome. So yeah, and you know it's interesting because I've been doing Revision Path now for for three years, and people will ask kind of what the the inspiration was behind it, and it's like, well, I'm a black designer. I know other black designers, but we are not reflected in the design community at all we're not reflected in the media in the conferences in the books in the magazines in the podcasts on the blogs you don't see us and we're out here and i wanted to just have this platform just to showcase people that are out there that are doing great work that are black designers and you know the, the feedback has been mixed i certainly will get the people that will say you know like you say uh it's all one design community why can't it just be that? I'm like, well, if it was all one design community, then why don't you see more black designers anywhere? Yeah, absolutely. You know, how many black designers can you name? Yeah, exactly. 
that's always a fun that's always a fun uh, and the funny thing is we're out there like honestly like uh i remember you know one of the coolest things i I remember seeing when i first my my first day at adidas is i saw all these really dope footwear designers and apparel designers that were that were black you know not just guys Mm -hmm. but girls and asians and and like people from everywhere and it was like man this is this is how it should be and like Yes. Um, and but you don't think of it like, you know, when you think footwear design, you think of somebody like Tinker Hatfield, who's like, you know, the guy who designed the Jordans and he's a white guy. And it's like nothing wrong with that. But that's just what our brain thinks, because that's what we see. That's what the blog. Yeah. That's what the blogs talk about. But mm-hmm. like, man, have mm-hmm. you there's so many other amazing designers that are minorities and they have a story to tell and they have a journey that's inspiring and nobody's given them a platform. It's which is sad. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, like I said, I've been doing this now for, for three years and I have not seen, and this might be shots fired. I don't care, but (laughs) I have not seen the design community or even like other design platforms, even try to include more black designers in their programming or, well, let me, let me take that back. Some conferences have certainly contacted me like at the last minute. Oh my God, we need, we need more diversity. I'm like, well, you know, this is not like the diversity store. Yeah, yeah. I don't have diversity in stock. Yeah. I can't give you like a diversity product or whatever. Or there's certainly people I can refer you yeah. to, but we're all busy people with schedules, yeah, just yeah. like the other folks that you see. There's two sides of that coin, though, right? So there's there's a side of like, and in casting, in being involved in casting and stuff like that in the past, and working on campaigns where we were like, we gotta. It, it was like in, including a, a minority was like a mandatory, you know. And mm-hmm. it's very different when people are just trying to check the box versus really, truly saying that, you know what, this show is not going to be successful unless we have a minority. It's a very different mentality than trying to fill a spot that's that's like they believe that. Am I making sense? No, no, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. So it's, I understand the value of, of having a, a show or an event being diverse, but not for the sake of diversity. It should be like... You know, our show is going to be a lot more interesting or a lot more impactful if we have diversity and not just ethnically, you know, gender, you know, like uh, all people from all sorts of, you know, the world, all sorts of experiences, experiential diversity as well. So it's. Yeah. Where do you see yourself in the next like five years or so? Like with the work that you're doing right now, where do you think it's going to take you? You know, it's funny. I have a very clear vision that's very general. (laughs) I have okay. a specific general vision and and it's you know like it's cliche as in my sound it's I want to be the next 901 North Washington Boulevard which is basically like where Charles and Reams used to operate out of which is like this studio which was amazing and they did amazing work and they did everything they did furniture design they did films they did graphic design they did they made design product they did everything right like it's so mm-hmm. it's an agency that is able to do uh creative problem solving no matter what the platform is and i know this is a very very shotgun approach and probably anybody in their right mind would advise me that this is not uh you know like a good business plan or whatever and i get it i get i get it and the reason why i want to do this is because i think i can and i think being hyper focused and saying i am going to be specifically a digital agency is probably a lot more attainable and from a business standpoint is probably the safest thing to do but what's awesome is in knowing that I want to do everything, there's been projects that have come my way and, and somebody will ask me, you know, hey, do you do, you know, like 
video, like a video production. Mm-hmm. And I'd never say no because I said yes. But I want you to know, like, you know, I approach it from a collaborative standpoint where I'll hire a production agency and uh-huh. I'll hire a freelance whatever art director that specifically does this. So you're getting the best possible type of product without having yeah. to get like this big agency thing. And so really like I'm trying to really set myself up to do everything. And one of my passions that that I enjoy from afar, which I haven't really studied or like really I'm well versed on is I love furniture, man. I love, you know, I love the way furniture looks. I love the way it sets the tone for a room and, and that kind of stuff. And I love the stuff that, you know, like Charles and Rams did and, and the, these early designers. And I used to love going into design within reach when I was in Portland. And it's uh, an amazing story. If anybody's, if you guys, if, if my, any of the listeners haven't been, you should go check it out. If there's a design within reach store with, you know, I'll caveat that with saying that everything that you see in Design Within Reach is definitely out of reach because it's like <laughs> it's like everything's like five thousand dollars, <laughs> right, right. But it's just cool to just be able to go into and just sit in one of these seats and and just experience this the, these products that were de- designed and you know there is these furniture designers and just creative thinkers that I, I follow uh, like Kareem Rashid and Philippe Stark who. They're traditionally industrial designers, product designers, but they really do everything. Mm-hmm. They do, you know, like Philippe Stark designed a hotel, you know? So yeah. it's it's really inspiring to be able to say, or at least to myself, I want to do everything because, like, I feel like I can probably do everything, especially if I have the right people on the team, you know? So that's my goal. And really, I don't know, I just want to, you know, I just want to dabble. <laughs> I love, like, just trying stuff. And so my vision five years from now is hopefully I'll look back at the body of work that I've done yeah. is, you know, it's inspiring. And also like, you know, I want to do something that gives back, for, you know, like uh, from a social standpoint, I'm involved with a couple of nonprofits that are really awesome. I'm involved with one nonprofit, which is called Coder Dojo. And I, I, uh, I help them with, you know, whatever they need. I volunteer and I, it's a program that basically teaches kids on the weekend how to code. It also teaches them how to build robotics and like Arduino sets and stuff like that. And it's crazy, dude. It's like these eight-year-olds that are freaking coding. It's amazing. It's like a, <laughs> I definitely want to be able to look back and feel like I've contributed, uh, not just, you know, like taking clients' money and giving them work, but really contributed to my community. And also like really, you know, at the root of it, like we had talked about, you know, I'm, I'm a believer and I'm a Christ follower and I want to be able to live a life you know, five years down the road, that's a more matured and deeper relationship and, and more rooted in the word and like, you know, have deeper convictions and a stronger relationship with God. And that's definitely one of my goals. Well, Ben, just to kind of wrap things up, where can our audience find out more about you online? Where can they follow the work that you do? Sure. So you can check out some of the work that, uh, well, our agency's website is bemandco.com, bem, B-E-M-A-N-D-C-O dot com and okay. you can check out some of my personal work that i haven't updated in a while but it's up there it's bemnet.net bem.net was taken so the best i can do was <laughs> bemnet.net and then uh, okay. uh you can also find me on linkedin and twitter i think my twitter handle is bemyem but it's uh, man i don't know if you have this problem but like <laughs> I'm like not on Twitter a lot, but like I feel like everybody is. I feel like everybody's a master tweeter, and like I'm, I'm just like light years behind them. But uh, it's not. It's, it's a platform that I, I still find very 
hard to navigate. Even though I use it, I'm just—it's not as friendly as Facebook or Instagram or you know those. I'm on those quite a bit. I've got I've got like four or five accounts, but they're all in. <laughs> well, no, but like they're all in Hootsuite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And go. so like I do yeah. a ton of scheduling, yeah. only because I know I'm not going to be on there every day. Yeah, exactly. So like for Revision Path, I will schedule out stuff for maybe the whole month or actually this this time around i did it for the whole quarter like i just scheduled out posts and there you know i'll go in and add new things like when i know i've got new interviews and stuff coming up but that's the way that i stay on top of of that and then my personal twitter account every now and then i'll tweet out something uh but i try to make it intentional yeah so, like, if it's something that I do want people to know, I'll tweet it out. Or I just feel or like it's like just that. a platform that doesn't allow a lot of – I don't know why, for some reason, that, like, the two-way communication just seems so disjointed. It still seems disjointed to me. I just like mm-hmm. the idea that I can have a conversation right there on one post in Facebook and, like, or in Instagram and, like, people – we can have a conversation right there versus, like – you know, the, the, <laughs> like tracking down yeah, all exactly. these different random but tweets and stuff. Not to say that I, you know, I sound like an old man, right? <laughs> I'm like only thirty-seven. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I'm on Twitter. <laughs> That's the point of the story. Just, I'm on Twitter, and I think I have a couple of accounts on there. It's Bemnet Yem. Uh, the handle is Bemnet Yem. Okay. Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, Bemnet, thank you so much for coming on yeah. the show. I mean, just everything that you shared about your your journey about your work about your faith like i can really see how you you mentioned something earlier about how you feel like young designers kind of need to have this hunger like they have to be hungry mm-hmm. and i feel like that's something that you have still kind of sustained up to where you are now and that's that's really kind of helped you oh, succeed absolutely, so absolutely this is this has been a great conversation man thank you again so much i appreciate it really thank you for having me and honestly again hats off to you and i didn't want to brown nose by being like a, a donor before the call but i'm definitely you know i'm definitely going to get involved and try to help you hey grow your community and i'm definitely going to spread the word amongst uh, thank you man i appreciate it that's great absolutely man keep doing your thing really proud of you i appreciate you having us on here thoughts of love And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Bemnet Yemeskin and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Bemnet and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks, of course, as always, to our sponsors, Facebook Design, MailChimp, and Hover. Facebook Design works on an enormous and diverse range of interesting problems. No one designs at scale quite like Facebook does, and that scale is only matched by their commitment to giving back to the design community. Learn more about designing at Facebook at facebook.com forward slash design. When it comes to email marketing, MailChimp makes it simple. They have great in-depth reporting, new and improved autoresponder features, and you can send 12,000 emails to 2,000 subscribers for free. No contracts and no credit card required. Check them out at MailChimp.com. Hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing your domains. Search for a few keywords and Hover will show you the best available options across all the domain extensions out there. Ready to get started? Save 10% off your first purchase by using the promo code REVISIONPATH at checkout. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro audio by Yellow Speaker. Make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a rating and a review. It really helps us get new listeners. It helps us go up in those iTunes rankings, particularly in the design category. And I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. 
If you like the work Revision Path is doing with the podcast and the website, then visit us over at Patreon and become a patron. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge your support. Pledge level started just $1 per month and you'll get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.